in episode 46 of Mosin at Large, echolocation, facial vision, and how it's all affected by COVID-19. There's a new Twitter bot that allows you to get quick access to images that aren't accessible. And we have plenty more information on what's coming up this year from Apple. Mosin at Large you're very welcome to contribute to the podcast, and there are two ways to do it. You can drop me an email to Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com. You can write something in that email, or you can attach an audio recording using anything that records and that you can attach to an email. You can also call the listener line. That number is in the United States. It's 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736, and record a message that could be included in the podcast. Concise contributions always help. We can't include everything because of the volume of contributions we receive. And please note that if we do use your content, we reserve the right to edit it for clarity and brevity. You can follow Mosin at Large, all one word, on Twitter to join the conversation with other listeners, to get sneak peeks about what's coming up on the podcast, and I regularly tweet links that I think will be of interest to Mosin at Large listeners. To keep up to date with Mosin at Large and radio-related activities I'm doing, you can subscribe to our media email list. It's announcements only, and the traffic is very light. To do that, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at mosin.org. The podcast version of this show contains extracts from the full version, which is heard live on Mushroom FM at mushroomfm.com and anywhere that you listen to radio stations at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on a Saturday afternoon. For the full Mosin at Large experience, I encourage you to be part of that community. And finally, before we get into the episode this week, a reminder that this podcast is long, and to help you navigate past the bits that you aren't interested in to the bits that you are, it's segmented by chapters. If you have a podcast app capable of supporting chapters, and many on iOS and Android do this, you can skip between segments of the show. It is great to be back with you for another episode of this. I hope that you are doing okay. Here in New Zealand, we remain free of community transmission of COVID-19, which is wonderful. We do have a few people coming in at the border with COVID-19 that they've picked up before they came here and they are in quarantine. There's a little bit of nervousness about some people who may have slipped the net. So, yeah, we've made lots of sacrifices to get to where we have. And so we have everything crossed that we are going to continue to be okay. I see Dan Rather posted a tweet saying that he'd like to be watching this from New Zealand. And uh, although we have our problems, I don't think there's anywhere else I would rather be at the moment. Now, I have been talking on successive editions of the podcast about our quest to get Dolby Atmos working on the Sonos Arc with our equipment and in an accessible way. And we've covered this, but I've also written a blog post about it. And if you would like to read that, because you might be interested sometime, if not now, sometime in doing what we did. And I always think it's nice if we can share the benefits of our trials and errors to save some other people the bother, right? So I thought that this one was a good one to write up in a blog post. And you can go to mosin.org slash atmosphere. I was rather proud of myself for coming up with that title because atmosphere is spelled A-T-M-O-S as in Dolby Atmos, fear, F-E-A-R. So mosin.org slash atmosphere. One thing that I have learned about this whole area of audio description not being available from many studios 
in Dolby Atmos. And I'm pleased to say I have learned that Apple's stuff is an exception. One of the reasons why I thought that Apple stuff was not audio described in Dolby Atmos was because the Apple TV app on our Samsung TV is not streaming Atmos at all from anything. But when I listen through our actual Apple TV, and I thank Justin Thornton for pointing me in this direction, we do get Atmos while watching Apple TV Plus audio described stuff. Absolutely amazing. So I'm really pleased about that. But one thing I have learned while I've been publicizing all of this and trying to be helpful is that there's quite a bit of disgruntlement, understandably so, in my view, about the fact that audio-described content is not often in the maximum available sound format that's being offered to sighted people. I'm hearing stories, for example, of people listening to audio description on TV And the soundtracks are in 5.1, but the moment that you switch to audio description, you just get stereo. That is so ironic, given how blind people are often going to appreciate the sound better than many. It is also second-class treatment, which makes it unacceptable. So I'm looking at what we can do about this. I'm looking at some sort of online petition and maybe a wiki of some description where we can chronicle the offenders We can actually name those studios and TV broadcasters who do not give blind people the maximum quality audio format available to sighted people just because we choose to have audio description. I think this kind of database will be useful and hopefully it will also put pressure on the providers to fix this. So I'll keep you posted on this. But in the meantime, you can check out that article if you want a summary of what I've learned and that is at mosin.org slash atmosphere. I'll put a link in the show notes of the podcast to that article. Mosin at Large Podcast. Hello, Jonathan. It's Sarah Hillis. I just thought I would give you my impressions of wearing a homemade mask for the first time. Someone uh, donated a pair of homemade masks to Michael and myself from Michael's church, which is a very well-meant gesture, and I think it's great, uh, especially because there are a couple instances around this province where if you don't wear a mask, they'll tell you to get out. Public transit being one, it seems to be a a norm uh, that's developing, and a couple other places. So um, while the government hasn't made it mandatory, they're recommending it when social distancing isn't necessarily easy to do, okay? Especially if you're indoors. So I'm glad I have this option because, well, I don't really... Uh, you know, I'm not convinced either way on the science because it's just bothering me. Uh, it's good to just go along to get along, to give people peace of mind, that kind of thing. Well, I thought I'd wear it while I took the dog out on his little constitutional. And what it is, it's a, it's a strip of cloth that can fit over your uh, mouth and nose. It has two ear loops that go behind your ears. And uh, it's interesting to wear because... I believe it actually does interfere with facial vision. This is a controversial uh, concept, I think, that people say, oh, come on, that, that's just echolocation. You're not really feeling anything in front of you with your, with your face. But as I walk toward this dresser here, I can definitely... It feels like I can feel that it's in front of me somehow. Just, I don't know, because of my skin. And my cheeks and my, you know... um Yes, my cheekbones <laughs> and thereabouts are the main things that I use for facial vision. So I do think that it actually does disrupt it a bit. I didn't find it completely disorientating, but 
it was interesting to to wear and i i'm glad i have the thing and i will certainly wear it when i am told to wear it because that's it's only respectful i suppose and uh, it's interesting it's just interesting that you know i thought i'd sort of enter in fully into the dystopian world that we're now in you know walking out with a mask on my face it just felt very very sort of sci-fi, right? Good to hear from you, Sarah. And this could be an interesting topic, I think, to hear from our listeners about in two respects. The first is the specific issue you raise regarding the effect of masks on facial vision and echolocation. And I have a couple of things to say about this. The first is I'm not sure I understand facial vision. I don't think I have it. I'm not conscious of it. Echolocation is another thing, but I'll come back to that. So if people think that facial vision really is a thing, I'd love to hear about how that works for you and how you use it in your life. Regarding the science of masks, this has interested me. We've talked about this on the program before, and I don't, I just want to be clear. It won't surprise many people who know me uh, to hear this, but I'm not coming at this from an angle about it's my constitutional right or whatever, I think that rights come with responsibilities. And clearly, if wearing a mask is going to help protect you from me, I might be asymptomatic. In other words, I might be carrying this virus around and not actually know it. And so if I can make a contribution by wearing a mask, then I should wear a mask. And the evidence does appear to be mounting that wearing a mask is effective. Some of the earlier studies that came out that contradicted that view appear to be being debunked by good quality science. And you've got to be guided by the good quality science in a situation like this. It is so sad to me, so very sad, that you have people of, of certain persuasions, in the United States especially, which is the country most affected by this pandemic now, and you have people who are saying, it's my constitutional right to freedom of assembly. And sadly, what we're seeing now is an increasing number of cases. Uh, in a number of states the other day, there was the largest number in a single day of new cases in the whole history of this pandemic. So it's not under control. And that is purely because of appalling leadership. Well, you wouldn't call it leadership. I don't know what you would call it, a dereliction of duty at presidential level. So if I were in a country where community transmission was still going on, I definitely would wear a mask if I were out now. I've been convinced by the science. Now, the echolocation thing is interesting. I've not worn one of these face masks, so I'd be interested in people's perceptions of how it is affecting orientation and mobility. I know that as someone with a hearing impairment, it would probably make it harder to understand people who are wearing a mask, and so that's a real thing, isn't it? The question of echolocation in general is something I would love to explore. I think there are some cultural issues associated with this. And I think I told this story on In the Arena, which was the nine-part biographical series that Glenn Gordon recorded with me last year. But in this context, it's a story worth telling. I noticed quite early, as I think many congenitally blind people do, that if I made sort of clicking noises or snapping with my fingers, I could tell all sorts of things about my environment that were helpful by the way that sound was bouncing off, echolocation. Now, every so often, you see on TV some kid who's been plucked out of obscurity because he or she does echolocation. I've seen this on TV over the years and sometimes even documentaries, whole hour-long documentaries on blind kids, and they think that somehow this blind kid is a miraculous thing because 
the kids using echolocation. And of course, many blind adults are going, (laughs) we're doing this every day. But I was actually actively discouraged from using echolocation at the school for the blind that I attended because it was interpreted as some sort of blindism. Now, blindisms are a thing as well. And by that, I'm talking about rocking, poking your eyes. One of the jokes I sometimes make is, dude, blind people rock. And that kind of thing is antisocial. It may well be comforting for the individual. I understand that. But it's a bit hard to progress in life if you're rocking away there and eye poking and doing things like that. So I understand that those are blindisms. Echolocation to me is not a blindism. It's a very handy alternative technique in many cases. But at the School for the Blind, it was interpreted by at least a couple of teachers that I encountered as a blindism. And I was actively told off for using echolocation to help me navigate. Over the years, I have met some people who have been extraordinary users of echolocation. I knew a blind guy who actually would ride a bike at quite a clip. They would whiz around on a bike and use echolocation to avoid bumping into things. Now, I must say, I think he had one or two scrapes, one or two scrapes along the way, but it was pretty impressive what he could do with echolocation. There are some people, and I should emphasize, I would not advocate trying this at home, but there are some people I've known who also have just left home in their neighborhood without a cane and navigated with echolocation. In fact, as kids... When we were a bit more bold and I guess neighborhoods were different, I remember going out with friends and just going to the local fish and chip shop using nothing but echolocation. How do you use echolocation? Do you have it? So I have met blind people who just don't have echolocation at all. And I don't know whether that's because echolocation is a skill that has to be developed and nurtured. And if you get to a certain point in your life where you haven't, you just can't acquire it. Or whether it's a bit like perfect pitch, some people seem to have it and some people don't. So I would love to hear your perspective on echolocation and the somewhat more obscure thing that I don't really understand called facial vision. I don't think I've ever had it. I don't understand it. I don't know if it's a thing. But Sarah assures me that it is. So who am I to argue? one 604 is my number. one 606 Get in touch on the email with an audio attachment or something written. Jonathan at MushroomFM.com Mosin at Large Podcast WWDC is over for another year and we have considerably more information than we did when we produced the podcast right after the keynote concluded on Monday US time. So I'm going to go through some of it now. But first of all, a couple of clarifications from that original podcast. The first thing I just want to make clear, because I've had a lot of inquiries about this, is that there is no iOS 14 without the I this year, just as there was no iOS 13 without the I last year. The reason for that is that by day, I have a job as a chief executive of a national organization here in New Zealand. And with the voluntary work that I do on this podcast in Mushroom FM, That's really about all I have the capacity to do. The iOS Without the Eye series took a lot of work, many, many hours of researching and testing and checking and writing. And unfortunately, I just don't have the time to do it. Now, Anna Dresner is writing once again a book on what's new in this version of iOS. So there will be an iOS 14 book 
and I understand that it will be published by National Braille Press, but obviously iOS without the I is a Mosin Consulting brand, so it will not be called iOS 14 without the I. You will, however, be able to find out all that's new in iOS 14 and have that in front of you when you explore the new operating system. It will be an excellent book, and whatever it's called, I encourage you to purchase that when it becomes available. But the iOS without the iSeries is on hold for now. If my circumstances change in the future, I may well bring that series back. In our post-keynote podcast, I expressed disappointment if it was the case that Apple would not allow you to specify default apps for email and web browsers. You can, in fact, do that, I'm pleased to say. So the rumor pre-keynote was correct. It's only the case for email clients and web browsers. Many people would like it to go much further than that and include Maps apps so that if you wanted to use Google Maps, you could. Spotify as your music app, if you could. That isn't possible yet. Maybe it'll be an incremental change over the years. But for now, you can specify a default web browser and email client that is not Apple's. So that's good to see. Let's turn first to accessibility because there is quite a bit that's new in accessibility that is exciting. Apple has added additional recognition to iOS 14. And there are two categories of this. One is that it's going to do a much better job of describing images. You download this recognition data. It's kind of like the way that you can download premium text-to-speech engines. So I presume that means that Apple can constantly make updates to this data. And when you've done that, you will find that you will get sentence-like descriptions of photos everywhere. Try it on your camera roll. Try it on the web. Try it with your Twitter clients. It is quite remarkable in some cases, the kind of descriptions that it is giving of photos. Apple is also trying to give you the choice to use apps that are not particularly accessible by looking at the screen and trying to work out what's going on. I think it's early days and clearly we are only at beta one at this point, so it wouldn't be fair to judge a feature when it's under development. So I'll be interested to see when iOS 14 comes out exactly how effective that is in terms of taking an app that you otherwise wouldn't be able to use with a previous version of VoiceOver and using that app now. There are also some philosophical issues around this, of course. It shouldn't be a disincentive for app developers to do the right thing and comply with Apple's guidelines. I think that is unlikely in Apple's case. You only need to look at WWDC just concluded and see all the accessibility sessions that Apple had there to know that they really do walk the accessibility talk and they will be encouraging developers to do the right thing. So I look forward to playing with that. Braille has had a new feature introduced in iOS 14, and this is the ability to auto advance the Braille display, kind of teleprompter style. This is a feature that as a Braille user, I don't use actually very much because I usually find that there are certain lines of Braille where maybe there's an unusual word that's popped up that I'm not that familiar with, where I kind of go a little slower and examine the word. So auto advance isn't a feature that I use much, but clearly there's been some call for it. And uh, anything that adds greater choice for Braille users, well, it's rocking. So congratulations to Apple for introducing this auto advance feature in Braille. In voiceover settings, you are able to adjust the speed with which auto advance takes place. And there's a rotor option as well. So you can have quick access to how quickly the auto advance does its thing. 
Speaking of the rotor, it's come to another Apple product this year, the Watch. VoiceOver on Apple Watch has had very little love in the last few releases of watchOS. No one can say that that's the case this year because you get the rotor finally and you also get Braille support in watchOS 7. So using Braille in conjunction with the Apple Watch, that is super cool and I look forward to the implications of that. It really will make working with the watch standalone a lot more viable for many of us. For deaf people and those with significant hearing impairments, there's a really cool new feature that listens for certain sounds. And there's a range of sounds that it can listen for, including sirens, doorbells, and babies crying, and will alert you by way of a notification if the phone hears those sounds. Apple's careful to say you shouldn't absolutely rely on this, but it's a really cool accessibility feature that they've added for the hearing impaired. Also, for certain compatible headphones, such as Beats and AirPods, there is the ability now to customize your listening profile to accentuate various frequencies. And they play various audio clips to you, and you decide which is the clearest one, and sound is EQ'd accordingly. It can also help with live listen. So a lot of work done in iOS 14 for the hearing impaired and deaf, which is great to see, including emphasis on sign language. When somebody's using sign language in a FaceTime call, that is now detected and steps are taken to take advantage of that. iOS and FaceTime have been popular choices in the deaf community. Under touch accommodations, a feature that many people will appreciate, whether you have accessibility needs or not, and I think this is a really interesting trend that's happening with some of Apple's accessibility features, they're carefully educating people that accessibility benefits everybody. And you see on social media people referring to the accessibility settings for a range of things that just make the phone better to use. And I think that's fantastic. It sends a really good message. This particular feature is cool. It's the ability to tap the back of your iPhone. You can either double tap it or triple tap it, and you can assign a very wide range of functions to a double tap or a triple tap of the back of your phone. If, for example, you find it difficult to swipe down to get to the notification center in newer phones or swipe down an even shorter way to get to the control center, You can assign a double tap or a triple tap to do either of those things. You can assign one of those gestures to getting to the home screen or adjusting the volume, a very wide range of things. One of the things I really like, and this is a feature that's been in voiceover since iOS 13, is that you can assign voiceover gestures and voiceover keyboard commands to run shortcuts. And the double tap and triple tap of the back of the phone can also be assigned to do that. Siri shortcuts are so powerful that that means you can essentially make a double tap or triple tap of the back of your phone do anything that you want. And drum roll, please. Yeah. This one will get a lot of people excited, and justifiably so. Finally, and this is something that many Android phones have done for years, the iOS 14 upgrade will bring the ability for audio app developers to use the multiple microphones in the iPhone to record in stereo. Long overdue, but good that it's here now. There are several microphones in many iDevices, and they're used often for noise cancellation and to make sure that when a speaker is speaking, they get the best possible recording. But 
it will be possible in iOS 14 for developers to use those mics to get stereo recordings. And at WWDC, there was a really interesting presentation where they talked about the various configurations that developers can go for in terms of what's recorded when a phone is orientated in a particular way. I wonder who will be first to market with stereo recording in their app, but it will be here in time for iOS 14. So many little tidbits that people have found in iOS 14. Let's go through some more of these. Hooray! Another drum roll. There is finally an edit field to help you find the emoji that you were looking for. And that has been so tedious as a voiceover user. Once you get iOS 14, there's an edit field, easy to find the emoji that you want. And I think as a result, blind people will start using emoji a lot more on iOS because it really has been a bit of a mission to date. Apple continues to double down on its privacy brand. They perceive this as a real strength. And one of the ways that they're doing that is to strengthen local network privacy. If you run, for example, the Sonos app, which will make extensive use of your local network, the first time that you run an app like that, you'll get a prompt that tells you that the app wants to access the local network and it asks if this is okay. Similarly, there's a new prompt whenever an app is trying to access the clipboard. I understand this because all sorts of sensitive data is sensitively temporarily stored on your clipboard. It can potentially be annoying for apps like my precious parcel app, which I use regularly, and we'll just have to see how that one pans out. But that is a new privacy feature in iOS 14. When you get iOS 14, you'll find that the music app has had yet another redesign. Apple seems to do this pretty regularly with the music app. I guess they just haven't found a formula they're happy with yet. So another overhaul. There's a listen now feature, which is front and center of the app. The bottom navigation tab, and by the way, voiceover now tells you a lot more often when you are on a tab bar in an app. The tabs now in the music app are browse, radio, library, and search, with the For You option having been replaced by the Listen Now tab. If you go into iOS 14's Health app, there is a health checklist now there, and that lets you manage health and safety information in one place. There are some new data types for health as well. They include mobility, health records, symptoms, and ECG. One of the things I do applaud Apple for is that when they do a radical overhaul of an app, they do tend to respond to feedback and work on it. A lot of developers do a big overhaul and just leave it alone for the next few years. Last year in iOS 13, Apple gave us a completely new Reminders app. I found it significantly better than what they had before, and it's become my primary Reminders app, in fact, because it's so good and Bonnie and I use it for managing household tasks and all kinds of stuff like that. There is a new quick entry option in the Reminders app this year in iOS 14 and smart suggestions as well for capturing new reminders more quickly. In situations such as the one I was describing, where Bonnie and I have a shared list of tasks, things like recycling that has to go out on certain days and various other household things that just keep it running smoothly, You can now, on a shared list, assign a member to a specific reminder to make it easier to split up those tasks. So that's a nice touch. 
In no particular order, continuing our look at iOS 14 new features, there was a lot of talk at the keynote about the new app library. And there's a setting that will allow you in iOS 14 to just add a new app that you've downloaded to the library rather than to the home screen. I suppose this could be useful if you just want to download an app and test it. And only then, if you know that you are going to use it regularly, would you assign it to pride of place on your home screen. So that's a nice little touch that's available in 14. Widgets were also a big feature of the keynote and people are discovering things that you can do. They talked in the keynote and we talked in our podcast a few days ago about smart stacks where depending on the time of day, you will see different things on your home screen. But it turns out that you can also create your own custom stacks of widgets. This means that you can pick different widgets and stack them on top of one another and then swipe between them. All you have to do to do this is add one widget to your home screen and then you go back to the widget gallery and choose another and you drag that on top of the first widget. So it's exactly the same technique that we've used in the past to create folders of apps. So when you do this, you can stack many different widgets together and then you swipe through them. I don't know at this stage how that will work with VoiceOver because widget support for VoiceOver is still a work in progress, it seems at the moment, but I'm sure that there will be a way to do this and create some very valuable stacks of widgets. Now, newer iPhones, starting with the iPhone 11, have a U1 chip. This is an ultra-wideband, low-range wireless technology. And the only thing that Apple have been using it for today is to help with airdrop and prioritize devices that are nearby. And a lot of us have been saying, it's really extreme to have a chip in there for that purpose. But clearly, Apple thinks long into the future. You only need to look at what they've done with AirPods this time around. A lot of people didn't even know that there were accelerometers in the AirPods Pro, for example. And clearly Apple put them in there, mindful of their product roadmap. We suspect, or I suspect anyway, that the U1 chip will play an integral part in the success of Apple Tags whenever we finally get them. But Apple's also opening up the U1 chip to third-party developers. This will allow some pretty interesting use cases. One of the use cases that they've talked about at WWDC could be very handy for blind people. They specifically cited an example of, say, using an app like Uber or Lyft or a taxi app, and if you and the driver both have phones with a U1 chip, it'll make locating each other really precise and easy. So that's one very practical benefit of the U1 chip that we are now seeing. Obviously, like everything Apple, you have to give permission on an app-by-app basis, but some of the use cases for the U1 chip now that it's being opened up will be very interesting. But I should point out that if you are an owner of a shiny new iPhone SE 2020 version, there is no U1 chip in that device. So unfortunately, you will miss out on some of these new developments there. But while we are talking about finding things, clearly the tile people are braced for the arrival of the Apple tags or the Air tags or whatever they end up being called. And they have been quite public in their concern about Apple's dominance. And there's a growing view in the tech industry that regulators have to step in 
and takes some antitrust action. Now, to try and fend this off, Apple are doing several things, including opening up the Find My app to third-party products. So what you may find by the time iOS 14 comes along or near after is that as an option, you'll be able to see your tiles in the Find My app. And now a touching story. Ah. You'll be aware that 3D Touch has been taken away from newer iPhones. It's been replaced by Haptic Touch, which is not quite the same thing. But 3D Touch was quite elaborate technology. It adds a little bit of thickness, and Apple's chosen to use that on better batteries, and I think most people would concur with that decision. Well, now it turns out that Apple is officially dropping support for Force Touch in watchOS 7. This is where you press really hard on the screen of the watch and often a little menu pops up with some quite useful options. Apple has already issued guidance about this for watchOS 7 developers and they say, and I'm quoting here, in versions of watchOS before watchOS 7, people could press firmly on the display to do things like change the watch face or reveal a hidden menu called a force touch menu. In watchOS 7 and later, system apps make previously hidden menu items accessible in a related screen or a settings screen. If you formally supported a long press gesture to open a hidden menu, consider relocating the menu items elsewhere. And while we're still talking about Apple Watch, a nice little feature that has been added is that iOS 14 will tell you when your Apple Watch is fully charged. This is going to be important for people who are using the sleep tracking. And the feedback has been a little bit about Apple's built-in sleep tracking. They're saying it's pretty basic and that apps like Sleep Plus Plus and similar apps are providing a lot more detail. But again, it's early days. The cool thing is, though, no matter what sleep tracking app you choose to use on your watch, if you choose to use one at all, you will now get a notification on your phone when your watch is fully charged. So that minimizes the need to go and have a look at it to see how it's doing. An intriguing feature that Apple talked about at WWDC was that starting in iOS 14, and it's also in macOS Big Sur, by the way, developers will be able to add the capability to detect human body and hand poses and photos and videos to their apps using Apple's updated vision framework. This functionality will allow apps, Apple says, to analyze the poses, movements and gestures of people, enabling a wide variety of potential features. And Apple provides some examples, including a fitness app that could automatically track the exercise that a user performs, a safety training app that could help employees use correct ergonomics, and a media editing app that could find photos or videos based on pose similarity. Hand pose detection in particular promises to deliver a new form of interaction with apps. Apple's demonstration showed a person holding their thumb and index finger together and then being able to draw in an iPhone app without even touching the display, which is pretty high-tech stuff. Additionally, apps could use the framework to overlay emoji or graphics on a user's hands that mirror the specific gesture, for example, a peace sign. Another example is a camera app that automatically triggers photo capture when it detects the user making a specific hand gesture in the air. The framework is capable of detecting multiple hands or bodies in one scene, but the algorithms might not work as well with people who are wearing gloves, bent over, facing upside down, or wearing overflowing or robe-like clothing. 
The algorithm can also experience difficulties if a person is close to edge of screen or partially obstructed. Here's something that might make your iPhone, if it's not already, your device of choice for browsing the web. Apple already allows Touch ID and Face ID to be used in lieu of a password to access sensitive apps like those for banking or password management. And in iOS 14, Face ID or Touch ID can be used for authentication purposes when logging into a website. Apple outlined the feature in a WWDC engineering session, which was called Meet Face ID and Touch ID for the Web. It covered how web developers can use Face ID and Touch ID on their websites with the web authentication apps. Now, the way this is going to work is that when you first log in to a website, you are going to have to log in the good old fashioned way by entering your username and password. Hopefully you're already using a password manager on your iPhone, whether that be iCloud Keychain, which is built in, or my personal favorite, 1Password, because I can use all my passwords on my Windows devices as well. So you'd log in that way. And then after that, if the web developer gives you this option, you will then be able to turn on Touch ID and Face ID. But i got to stress, the web developer has got to support this on their site for that to work. Some years ago now, because I remember writing it up in one of my iOS without the iBooks, Apple introduced family sharing. And what used to happen before family sharing came along is that a lot of people would have one App Store account that a whole family would use, and then they'd have another iCloud account for personal things like messages. And it all got a little bit messy because people were sharing passwords all over the place. And so Apple formally introduced a thing called family sharing. It also gave developers a lot of choice in terms of whether they supported this feature or not. One of the downsides of family sharing, though, or perhaps one of the benefits from an app developer's point of view, is that you couldn't share in-app purchases. But when iOS 14 comes along, you will be able to do just that. It will be an option for the developers to decide on. And so we'll just have to see how many are going to let you do that. But it certainly would be a very customer-friendly experience if you can share, say, a subscription with a family member or other in-app purchases to upgrade to a certain feature set. The podcasts app in iOS 14 is, in my view, mediocre. It really is mediocre, but it's easy to get. It's got very good Siri integration. And while the vast majority of users of iOS still use the app, they are starting to feel the heat, particularly from big players like Spotify. I don't think they're especially worried about Overcast or my favorite podcast app on iOS Castro, but they will be concerned about Spotify and their pretty significant play to be the dominant player in the podcast space. So there is a new podcast app in iOS 14. It's using artificial intelligence to give you curated suggestions. So if you listen to this podcast, for example, it will try and guess what else you might like. Now, if you're a Mac user, you will probably be pleased to know that the startup chime is back, although it could be a bit irritating when it would make that noise when you were booting up in the middle of a meeting or something like that. But a lot of people missed the startup chime. So with macOS Big Sur, you get the startup chime back. Also, Apple has confirmed that there will be no boot camp on Macs using Apple Silicon. And at this stage, there's a lot of doubt over what will happen to 
apps like VMware Fusion and Windows. So the jury's still out in that regard, but definitely no boot camp in Macs with Apple Silicon. And those are some of the key things that we've all found out since the WWDC keynote concluded and our post-keynote podcast was recorded. There's quite a bit there. So what do you think? Are you looking forward to Apple's new releases? And of course, we haven't even had the hardware yet. It promises to be a pretty spectacular year for Apple hardware later in the year. Let me know your views. Jonathan at mushroomfm.com. The listener line, of course, is 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736. Some comments here already. Petra listened to the post-WWDC keynote, and she wants to know, what is NFC, eh? What is it? I'm very sorry, Petra. I do normally try and explain those acronyms, and clearly I failed, failed with this one. NFC stands for Near Field Communications. Modern iPhones have this technology, and it's used for Apple Pay. It can be used for several other tasks as well. It's quite cool technology. Eventually, what you'll find is that with your NFC phone, it will do things like become your hotel key. Gone will be the days. In fact, there are some hotels already doing this. Gone will be the days where you have to carry those silly plastic cards that often get erased when they get put by certain things that you have on your person. You'll just go to the front desk. In fact, you might not even need to go to the front desk at all. You just go in there and your particular phone will be programmed to unlock your particular room door and voila, tremendous. So NFC is forming a critical part of the Apple car key project and also it's uh, a part of some of these cool things that we're seeing with the app clips. So great technology, near field communications, and it is in all the new iPhones. Kate Morse is happy. And a happy Kate Morse is what we like. She says, I was impressed with the WWDC this year. What I am wondering is, what iPhone models will be supported for iOS 14? Great podcast, exclamation mark, she says. Thank you so much, Kate. I appreciate that. That's a very good question. And the answer is, anything that runs iOS 13 now will run iOS 14. Now, that is pretty cool, isn't it? Because... Some of those phones are getting pretty old and jaded around the gills, and yet they will still be able to run iOS 14. That is far better than you can expect of any Android device on the market. Christopher Wright is writing, Hi Jonathan, here are my comments on WWDC 2020. I just finished your podcast covering it, which was fantastic. Thank you very much, Christopher. I don't really care too much about iOS 14. The app list and home screen widgets are very cool, and it's clear they're going after Android. Aside from those things, I'm only interested in voiceover enhancements. I'm not a fan of the Apple Watch, TV, or HomePod. Why not? Why not, eh? So I don't really care. Other than, it's fantastic. They're accessible. I have two words that clearly state my thoughts on the new ARM Macs. Run away! With a squillion exclamation marks after. Say goodbye if you don't want to natively run other operating systems and expect to throw away your shiny Mac in five to six years when Apple decides it's obsolete. I predict Intel Macs will face the same fate as PowerPC before the end of the 2020s. 
I'll keep my MacBook Air, which will run Windows 10 for several more years, even if Apple drops support in a year or two. I'm also not a fan of the Mac anymore for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is the lack of voiceover stability slash innovation and the fact that soldering SSDs and gluing batteries, that's a big no-no. Apple's irritating and proprietary behavior continues. I've just about had enough with their we know what's best, we'll do whatever we want, and you'll like it or take a hike attitude. The only reason I still use iOS is the superior voiceover experience and some proprietary apps such as Timecrest and Seeing AI. Laurel Jean Walden has emailed in. She says, Hi, Jonathan. It was so good to hear your panel discussion on Apple's latest announcements. I will definitely be looking forward to the alphabetized app library in iOS. Also, I think that I will appreciate having less of the screen covered by the phone in Siri apps. I certainly do hope that bug in the mail app is fixed, though. I'm not sure how I feel about the new Mac processors and won't be taking the plunge into a new Mac until I am convinced of their stability. Interesting, you will get some pretty massive battery improvements, my understanding is. Significant battery improvements. She continues, As for masks... While I can't tolerate anything covering my ears, I have not had the issues with masks and gloves that many have described. Echolocation and facial vision are both part of my mobility toolkit. Donning hazard gear to go out is kind of a nuisance, but fortunately, neither the masks nor the gloves seem to hinder my travel. I use the very thin surgical-style gloves. It is a habit of mine to always keep these in my cabinet, so I fortunately did not have to worry during the supply shortage. In early March, when I thought I might need masks, I went on Etsy to see if I could find some handmade ones. I did find some made from camouflage cloth and ordered them. I did not realize that Etsy does not initially record one's location when one visits the site, so when I checked out after I paid... I received a notice that I might have to pay tariffs on the three masks that I ordered from Lithuania. Wait, Lithuania? Nobody said anything about Lithuania. (laughs) I received the three camo masks neatly wrapped during the first week of June. No tariffs were charged to me, and I've been very happy with my purchase. I would definitely purchase from the seller again, but not on short notice. A day or so after I ordered the Lithuanian masks, my prayers were answered when a lady in Florida sent four handmade masks sewn from ladies' handkerchiefs for my BFF housemate Audrey, also blind, and me. How many housemates do you have, Lauren, to have a BFF one? Oh, I think I get it. Yeah, I get it. Then my stepmom texted from Illinois and said that she was making masks for us. After that, Some really decent disposable ones were advertised, so we ordered those too. We've actually been able to give masks to others who do not have access to them, and that is a real blessing. As always, I look forward to hearing the live show and listening to everyone check in from around the world. Thank you very much, Laurel. That was most educational. I've not heard of Etsy before, so I need to go and check that out too. 
More stuff coming in on the email. This is Linda Manrosh, and she says, I am congenitally blind. When I was a little kid, I would go for walks with my father. I could tell him every time we passed a tree. I am sure that was my facial vision at work. But poor dad probably thought I was gaining some eyesight. Unfortunately, I never developed echolocation and did think it was a little weird when a blind guy I knew made strange sounds. Perhaps had I realized their value for mobility purposes, dot, dot, dot. See, your life could have been completely different, Linda, eh? The one that got away. I too wonder, she says, why some blind people might use echolocation while others of us have not. As for my facial vision, not sure it is as effective now that I am older. I also have horrible tinnitus in my left ear, which probably interferes with a lot. Sean, hi to you. He's tweeting in and says, I use touch technique, tapping with my cane, both for echolocation and letting other people know that I'm coming. Also email coming in from Stan Luttrell. He says, I'm now in possession of both a Focus Blue 40 Braille display, fifth generation, and an L Braille, fifth generation computer for my work at Rogue Retreat. I'm looking forward to using both units. I have to use a face mask when I am out and about. I've also heard facial vision called shadow vision. I'll be interested to hear how you get on with the L-Braille stand. I was looking at the specs of that the other day, and the L-Braille certainly has come a long way. I think I would still prefer 16 gigabytes of RAM rather than 8, but it looks like a pretty viable product. Also listening live today is Lynn White. Welcome to you, Lynn. My question for you is, he says, when I try to use the Siri shortcut, to import from the Apple Podcast app, I get a message that my security settings will not allow this shortcut to run. Thanks for talking about Castro. It is definitely the best. I don't know the answer to this one, Lynn, because I don't use the Apple Podcasts app. And I can appreciate that if you've got a lot of uh, podcasts there because you want to convert this is an important one. If you can't get a solution from our knowledgeable Mosin at Large listening family, I'd encourage you to contact Castro Support and see if they have a solution for you. I must admit I am so devoted to Castro that it caused me to downgrade. I did briefly upgrade to iOS 14 to have a play and noticed that Castro at the moment doesn't work properly on iOS 14. And I tried using Overcast again and I just... It was just such a downgrade compared to Castro now that I'm used to it. I couldn't stand it. And listening to podcasts is such a big part of my day that I went back to iOS 13 so that I could have Castro back. And speaking of Castro. Hello, Jonathan. This is Graham Innes from Australia. I had a wow moment when you were doing a demonstration of Castro in last week's podcast. And you um, mentioned on the way to talking about something else that... um, podcasts which you received regularly could go directly into your queue. And I thought, that's fantastic. I'd love to be able to do that. I reckon I spend three minutes a day in the inbox of the Castro app sorting out my podcasts, where as uh, two-thirds of them, I know where I want them to go. So I had a look, and yes, you can do it, and I thought it would be worthwhile showing people. So I'm going to go into the Castro app, open Castro, 
And here's the settings button. Yes, I've been a member since the 10th of February. Let's go to show settings. New episodes, but episode limit, button, new episodes, and new episodes, new episode is released, heading, default, and toolbox, but override for this show, default, when a new episode is now, released. Now, this is a great feature, because when a new episode is released, the default is that you can add it to the inbox, and for a podcast that you might want to check out before you listen to it each week, that's fine, but there are probably two-thirds of my podcasts that I just regularly add to my queue, so let's have a look. Default, and toolbox, but override for this show, heading, Ericast, queue last. Button. So, Ericast goes into my queue last. Uh, as does that one, Apple Viz. Background, briefing. Button. Background briefing's an Australian current affairs program, but I want to know what it's about before I decide if I listen. So, I leave that in the inbox. Mr. ABC Grandstand. Button. And that's true of that one as well. And that one as well. Blind Citizens Australia, queue last. Button. But of course, I always want to listen to Blind Citizens Australia, so that goes automatically into my queue. And when it comes to the Mosin. Uh, at large podcast. And that's in the top of the queue because, of course, I want to listen to that straight away. Very diplomatic of you, Graham. Yeah, it is a great feature and it just speaks to the versatility of Castro. Charlie Crawford, good to hear that you're on the mend. Welcome to you. And he was asking, how do you unsubscribe from a podcast in Castro? It is a little hidden, actually, and that's unfortunate. I'd like to see the unsubscribe option in Castro right there on the rotor, but at the moment it isn't. So what you do is you, when you've subscribed to a podcast, it'll be in your library. So you do what Graham did there. You go into the library and you double tap on the podcast in question, and then you double tap on settings. And at the bottom of the settings screen, you will find an unsubscribe button and you can nuke, nuke that podcast. Jonathan Mosin, Mosin at Large Podcast. From sunny Auckland, New Zealand, we hear from Fraser Alexander, who says, Hello, Jonathan. As you have discussed this previously, I wonder if you've found an iPhone option rather than an old school radio for listening to broadcasts at live sports events. I read about the Sound Dot AF1 earbuds with a companion app from Blackloud. The article mentioned that to tune directly into FM radio in real time, you simply connect the wired headphones to your iPhone via the lightning port and choose your station. If they work well, it seems like a good alternative option at around 100 New Zealand dollars. Even for a digital diffident like yours truly, you put together some podcast you do. (laughs) Thank you very much, Fraser Alexander. I haven't heard of this gadget before, but let's open it up to the highly intelligent Mosin at large masses. So the problem that Fraser is seeking to overcome, he's a major sports junkie as Fraser, just by way of background. And I think like many blind people, he goes to the sports events with a radio and tunes into the commentary. One of the problems, of course, is if you go to the sports event with your iPhone and you tune into the commentary that way, you're going to get latency, big latency sometimes, to the extent that the crowd's cheering away and it takes about 30 seconds or more for you to know what they were cheering about when the uh, commentary catches up. So, I mean, you can take a little portable radio, I guess, with you. But since you have your iPhone lurking about with you anyway, wouldn't it be cool if there was a gadget you could plug into it? And this is why I think it's a shame that iPhones don't come with an FM radio. There was a big campaign in the US some time ago about this. 
arguing for the FM radio chip, which I understand was at least in some of the older iPhones, to be enabled. And people say, blah, they say, blah, FM radio's so like 20th century, dude. But the point is, FM radio continues to work often in natural disaster situations when digital things can come crashing down. We've had several pretty significant earthquakes in New Zealand in recent years. Digital communications are often under strain or completely down, but radio signals remain. So as a health and safety issue, I think FM radio should be made available on all smartphones. But if you've found a way around this, maybe with this kind of gadget, that phrase is talking about, let me know. Jonathan at mushroomfm.com by email with a voice attachment or write something down there. The phone number in the United States, 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736. Last week, we had a few bits of feedback on the quality of the voice. Not very favorable feedback, I have to say, on the quality of the voice in the Samsung TV that I demonstrated. Brian Gaff seems to have found its origins, and he sent me this. This particular voice is called S-Fox Pico, and originates from the Android world some years ago. It does seem to sound a lot like the Samsung TV voice to me. At the moment, it's been adapted to work in NVDA by a Python driver. Well, I guess it's better than eSpeak. Julie McCullough writes, Hi, Jonathan. I heard an interesting tidbit last night, and I wondered if it might affect how blind people could deal with something like the bionic eye. Last night, a couple of friends told me that a study has been done that shows that even for blind people who read Braille, their ability to decode the dots and combination of dots into words, numbers, and symbols is done through the visual cortex. My understanding is that the brain interprets dots of Braille, with a capital B, as pictures, even though we have to touch them to make sense of them. She says, sometimes if I'm wondering if I'm spelling a word correctly, I can see the word the way I think I've seen it before in Braille in my mind. So if our visual cortexes help us to interpret Braille, even though we can't see it with our eyes with a special device, would it have to be such a stretch if our eyes were in good condition for them to be trained to interpret information? Just a futuristic thought. Thank you, Julie. Interesting indeed. Last week on Mosin at Large, I mentioned how impressed I was with the evolution of Narrator. This is the screen reader built into Windows. Kelly Sapurja wrote in then from Saskatchewan in Canada, from Moose Jaw, Moose Jaw in Saskatchewan, Canada. He says, I use Narrator occasionally, and it's certainly better than it was years ago. I still prefer using a third-party screen reader, but I can see where it can come in handy. One thing I can't stand about it, however, is the way it works with Braille with a capital B, Displays. I've used it with two displays, a help tech, which he says is formerly handy tech. I didn't realize that they had changed their name to help tech. Interesting. Uh, Braille display and my current one, the Focus 40 Blue fifth generation. With both products, I've noticed that Narrator doesn't detect them when it's started and if Braille support is enabled. Instead, I have to select the Narrator-specific driver in the Ease of Access settings screen, which uses Braille TTY for the output. The problem is that if I exit Narrator and load another screen reader like JAWS or NVDA, I don't get any Braille support 
until I've switched the driver back to the USB setting in ease of access, which I think is both tedious and unnecessary. I know there's a Braille TTY driver in NVDA, but I prefer using the specific driver for the display in question. I also don't think JAWS has a Braille TTY driver. As far as I know, this has happened ever since Braille support was introduced in the Rater. I'm wondering if anyone else has experienced this issue. Oh my goodness, yes, Kelly. My goodness, yes, I have, only quite recently. I haven't bothered exploring Narrator's Braille support because really Narrator didn't interest me until this release. For me, this release of Windows is the tipping point where I say to myself, I can actually see myself using this in some situations. I'm finding, for example, in Outlook, it is performing really well. So for the first time, I installed Braille support. You have to download Braille support and install it and that kind of stuff. And it worked to a fashion. I haven't really looked up the Braille chapter of the narrator manual yet. As you can appreciate, it's been a busy time for me. But it worked. I got Braille working. I managed to change to contracted Braille and do a few things like that. And then I decided, right, I've got work to do. I need to get back to JAWS and get that work done. And I loaded JAWS and no Braille. Well, my heart sank. It really did. And then I found out that you have to do what you said, go into ease of access. But I tried various other things before I got to that point. And it is ridiculous. I'm sorry. But, you know, the other screen readers, NVDA and JAWS and I think the, the Dolphin products, they all have their own drivers and they all just coexist nicely. You quit one screen reader, you start the next screen reader and you get Braille. Why does Microsoft make it this hard? I do remember when I was working at Freedom Scientific, there was a lot of talk about this sort of new USB standard, the human interface driver standard for Braille displays. What actually happened to that? I'm completely out of the loop there. I presume that would solve the issue. And Microsoft, I think, was pushing that pretty hard. But I don't know whether anything's eventuated. But yes, it really stumped me for a bit until I realized that that's what you have to do to get your Braille back in JAWS. It was a bit scary to suddenly find myself without it. There's nothing more frustrating than going on to social media and finding that you're locked out of the conversation because of inaccessible images. And in fact, Twitter is getting worse in this regard. You can see tweets where there is no text at all, and your screen reader is just going to tell you that an image is attached. Now, there are several things that you can do about this, and they're not particularly convenient. For example, on my iPhone, I can go and recognize the image with any number of apps, including Seeing AI and Envision AI, but you've got to find it in the share sheet. It's all a bit time-consuming. In an ideal world, we would have a lot more awareness of this, and people would do the right thing, but we don't live in an ideal world. And somebody who's come up with a very elegant solution to this problem is Cole Gleason, and he joins us now. Hi, Cole. I really appreciate you being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. How did you get into this area? I notice you're doing a PhD specializing in blindness and vision impairment. What interested you in this to, to get to that level of study? When I had first thought about doing uh, research in computer science, myself and my brothers have like a slight visual impairment, and I was interested in what sort of technology you could use to make things more accessible. And I read some cool papers and saw some cool prototypes and ended up 
um, coming here to CMU to work on different tools for people with vision impairments, um, including uh, outdoor navigational tools and and now more uh, content on on the internet. It's a mixed blessing, social media, isn't it? Because it can be quite an equalizer. You don't necessarily need to disclose that you're blind or vision impaired unless you want to. Mm -hmm. And yet, on the other hand, there's a lot of intolerance and there's also a lot of inaccessibility out there that can be frustrating. Yeah. Like you said, it's a mixed bag because a lot of the content out there isn't accessible. And, and, you know, this isn't to disregard the issues that people have with interfaces or platforms or anything like that. But, you know, how do you get accessible content without asking people, you know, hey, I have this disability, I really could use alternative text or captions here. And, you know, that that's not a great way to experience the platform, especially if you're going to be disclosing your disability status all the time. So, I mean, the, the best solution, and I hope we can all agree, is that people would just add alternative text or captions or make their content accessible from the start. But I don't think that's going to happen without with, with no changes. And so... Uh, looking for other solutions to fill the gap as we as we try to increase the amount of content that users make accessible is what I'm trying to do. Broadly speaking, there seem to be two approaches to this. So you've got Facebook, which over time has done the AI thing and attempted to describe images. And then on the Twitter side, you've had Twitter include a feature where you can go in as the author of a tweet and describe an image with a pretty generous number of characters to do it. But it wasn't until recently that that thing was on by default. You had to first go in and turn it on in accessibility settings that few people looked in. And then second, you have to proactively describe the image. Do you think that AI will ever get to the point that we will have, we can let people off the hook and say, look, you don't need to describe your images yourself anymore because the AI is doing it properly? I mean, the problem with AI is that I, I think we will be impressed in the next few years at how much better it gets, but it will never be able to understand the additional context that a human has in terms of why they took that photo. Uh, what is in that photo that, you know, a computer just can't discern. Um, if I take a picture of a soup I made, I can tell you what ingredients I put in it. The AI can't do that. I can tell you a person's name. And unless we have some really Orwellian uh, facial recognition, the AI can't do that, right? Like I can tell you what's out of the frame of the photo. So I think AI is going to get better as a stopgap solution, but the ideal solution is always going to be to get the original poster to describe it because they should have the most context. And yet it's hardly ever happening, is it? With accessibility-related accounts, say the Microsoft one and, and various others, uh, disability agencies, you would just expect as a matter of course to see those images described. And in fact, when you don't, normally it uh, spouts quite rightly some castigatory tweets from people saying, you've got to walk your talk, guys. But what I find is that when just a rank-and-file Joe public goes ahead and describes an image, I'm genuinely surprised and grateful. Mm -hmm. So what do we do about education? I mean, pe most people just don't do it. I mean, I think the number one thing was uh, remove barriers to to do this at all. I don't think it's going to solve the issue, but how can you expect people to uh, describe images if they can't even find out how to turn on the settings? So I'm glad that that's changed. After that, I think what I'm trying to do now, and this is you know future research or ongoing research right now, is 
how do we get people to the point where when they upload a photo, they have some box to put in alt text? Can we structure that in a way that we lead them to get the most important information out of this person? So can we ask them, you know, who's in this photo? What are they doing? Where are they? Instead of just giving them a big blank text box, because people who aren't familiar with the issue don't know what to put there and don't know why they would. So I think trying to structure the task uh, a bit better is something I'm looking at and giving people feedback on how good their descriptions are. Uh, And at that point, hopefully we can train up people to be better at, at these sorts of things. You will have been following, I'm sure, as I have, the furore around Twitter's introduction of voice tweets without captions. And one thing I've always admired about the deaf community is they don't take that kind of stuff from no one, man. I mean, they well, they were onto this and they forced Twitter to respond and now action is being taken. I wonder whether the answer just isn't very simply, if you add an image to a tweet, Twitter should not let you save that tweet unless you describe it. Isn't it that simple to fix? I mean, I personally uh, think that would fix the problem to some extent. I just don't think Twitter is going to do it. I mean, we can always push for that. But uh, the other issue you have to think about is when people are forced to fill out fields, are they going to fill them with garbage? And I'm not saying that to say we shouldn't try it. Uh, I think we should increase the amount of alt text out there and and just try to get people to fill it in. But, But you do have to maybe detect when people are trying to just keyboard smash in that field and uh, discourage them from doing that approach. And that brings us nicely to the bots that you have created. Am I right in saying there are broadly speaking two ways that you can engage with this? Because I think it started life as a web-based tool and now you can deal with it using a hashtag from any Twitter client. Yeah, we originally set it up as a Chrome extension or a browser extension in general that we've been using with a small cohort of users for about a year or so. And that like really looked at every image that you scrolled through in your timeline and tried to put in alt text like, you know, within 30 seconds or so. But a lot of people don't like to use Twitter on their, you know, desktop computer and their web browser. They might use uh, TW Blue as a client on the computer. They might use a uh, different a mobile client a lot of the time. And so I wanted something built into the the fabric of the platform itself, uh, which is why there's a bot. And I'm not the first person to do a bot interaction on social media, but uh, what I'm trying to do is make that interface a really easy way to tag a hashtag and get a response from the bot and also build in several different ways to get a description. And it tries to use the one most appropriate for that image. One of the things that I really like about this method, and so you just reply to a tweet with an inaccessible image and you use the hashtag describe image and the tweet will come back to you and the person who sent the tweet with the description. And I think that's quite educational, actually, because in a 280 character tweet, you can explain why you're doing this and so i've used a couple of times with organizations that should know better i follow a bbc archives account for example now the bbc is a public broadcaster in the uk with a lot of social media awareness and they also in my view as a public broadcaster have an obligation to be inclusive so what i was able to do is is write a mention to one of their accounts and say well since you're not following good social media practices as a public broadcaster should 
I'm having to resort to AI to get a description of this image. And then I use the describe image hashtag. And then when the image comes back from your bot, I get it. But so does the original tweeter, which I think is really good. Yeah, I built a few things into the bot to try to encourage that educational aspect. One is that, um, you know, it includes a long alt text up to a thousand characters uh, where applicable to each image, but only screen readers users really can encounter that. And so it does a small snippet, about 140 characters, so that sighted users who are reading this tweet understand what's going on. And also it has a link to like the Twitter help documentation so that they know where to add you know, alternative text the next time. Now, whether or not they follow that, we need to push for people to do more of that. Um, but I hadn't really expected to see so many people when they use the describe image hashtag, really try to educate people alongside that hashtag. So like what you described with the BBC, and I've seen other people do that, that's really great. And I, I hadn't expected like the extra space in that tweet to be used for that purpose. When you develop features like this, and I've actually been in product management where I've had some say in performing, say, OCR on inaccessible PDFs and that kind of thing. Understandably, you get some blind people who say, you know, th this is all very well and good, but you're letting people off the hook. Do you have that concern that if, if your bot exists, it might discourage people from doing the right thing? Yeah, I am concerned about that. Um, I, I am concerned about it, but we're in a really stark situation where, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, we, we did the numbers and 99.9% .9 of images on Twitter, for example, are inaccessible. And that's a, a social network that has put in the effort to at least have a feature out there. You know, if you go to like Reddit or something, they haven't even done that. So I think I am concerned about it. And every time I talk about automatic descriptions, for example, I point out that they're not very good. And they lead people astray. But, you know, I talked to people about this and about like Facebook's automatic captions and everyone says, you know, they're not perfect, but they're better than nothing. And it's my role as a researcher to listen to people when they say it's better than nothing and try to build some solution while still recognizing that we need user education, we need platforms to take it more seriously, and that probably in the end, human written descriptions are going to be the most important. When you use the describe image hashtag, where does the tweet go? Where are the descriptions coming from? So it has six different methods, although many of them are not used that heavily. The most important ones are OCR for text recognition, which I actually think works fairly well. The other one is automatic captioning. It previously used Microsoft's image captioning model, which I think is similar to Seeing AI or exactly the same as Seeing AI. And recently, I've been experimenting with one called CloudSight, which does give a bit more information about color and material, but does not include things like celebrity recognition like Microsoft's does. Um, the other ones that are in there, uh, one tries to look around the web and see if someone else has posted this image with a description before, because hopefully that would be written by a human and be a little bit better. But that only works if that image has been posted around the web. Yeah, the only other methods that uh, one is actually not active in the bot right now, but we, we do have a way to crowdsource images on the fly from Amazon Mechanical Turk workers, but it's not a fast or necessarily great solution. Ingenious. One of the feature requests I saw come through, and I wondered what your view was on this, was would it ever be possible to ask for a description of a tweet 
and get the response back via a direct message. So the query of the description is private and not sort of cluttering people's Twitter timelines. Do you have a view on that? Is that technically possible? Yeah, actually, I uh, just uh, tur- turned that on yesterday. So it is out there. Uh, you can direct message the bot. Currently, it only works on full tweets. So you have to send like a tweet using the share via direct message button. But eventually, I hope that I will also support if you send me an image directly, uh, we can label that. I really think that's important because, like you said, it clutters up people's timelines and maybe uh, it reveals someone's disability status when they would rather not do that. But I also like the public version for people who do want to uh, inform the user that, hey, I couldn't understand this tweet. Please describe them in the future. Yes, it's an important statement to make. I presume there are costs involved in this because I know that Microsoft has a, a charging regime for for, for their service. Um, how is that funded and do you feel that funding is secure in the medium to long term? Yeah, I mean, this started as a research project and it is still somewhat a research project. So um, we do have some funding from grants, but currently the way it's funded is basically that there are not enough users to really uh, cost us that much money. If we were to get into a scenario where we had a lot of heavy usage, as an academic, I don't know what the future would hold. And I hope that I can find a solution that uh, lets us stay online and be available to people in the future. Maybe Twitter will embrace this technology and fund you to do it or do it themselves. Yeah, that's a hope. I think, you know, I would really want Twitter to adopt some of the approaches we're taking, but, you know, I... Uh, I, what we're doing here as a research project gives us a little bit more flexibility than Twitter can. Um, you know, if Twitter were to roll out automatic descriptions tomorrow, some would see that as a win and some would see that as an abdication of responsibility to, um, you know, get human written descriptions in there. So I luckily get to play with it a bit and see um, where automatic systems are good and where they fail in a way that uh, Twitter probably shouldn't be experimenting on their entire user base like that. This is cool technology. I just want to say thank you for delivering it for this research project. I really appreciate all you're doing. Yeah, thank you for having me. And I really hope to engage with people on Twitter and uh, maybe other social networks in the future and uh, get some good feedback and suggestions for more improvements. Mosin at Large Podcast. Katie Frederick is tweeting in, and she says that the head, that's the human interface device, is supported on Braille display. <laughs> Are you brailing, Katie? Because you've got bro displays. Hey, I've got my bro display. Such as the Orbit Reader and the Mantis display as well. She continues, I too am disappointed. Microsoft has made Braille with a lowercase b support and narrator so cumbersome here's gino j gino j in massachusetts and he says i'd be interested to find out if we get access to all the microphones using team talk on ios 14 as i use it quite frequently on my iphone 7 it already is available for android users well team talk of course prides itself on using high-quality codecs. Uh, They do have Opus implementation. So I would imagine that if they update their iOS app for iOS 14, you'll be able to get stereo, and that will make a lot of people very happy to be able to do stereo on TeamTalk. Hopefully, you'll also be able to do stereo on Zoom 
and uh, other things like that. Here's a uh, email from Londa who says, Hi, Jonathan, I find the same thing that Sarah does with masks. I find that they seem to block my echolocation or facial vision or whatever you may call it. See, London, my understanding is that echolocation and facial vision are somehow different, but I don't think I have the facial vision thing. Londa continues, I have a few places in my office that I can usually walk without cane or dog using echolocation alone. I'm finding this difficult with my mask on and masks are required when you're walking around the office building. Needless to say, my guide dog is accompanying me everywhere for now. And Peter is emailing in from Hungary. See, I've learned my lesson from last time, Peter. We try and live and learn on this show. He says, I can't stop admiring your knowledge and experience concerning all IT areas. Well, thank you very much. I should make you my promotional agent or something. I wonder if you have any suggestion when it comes to RSS readers running on desktop computers. I use the good old Internet Exploder to follow the RSS feeds that I subscribed to. But since this browser gets more and more anachronistic, yes, that's a good description, I tried to find another RSS reader for Google Chrome or Firefox. I gave a chance to Feed Reader on Chrome and FeedBro with Firefox. That sounds like a cool name. I'm using FeedBro, man. Anyway, none of them reports, Peter, seem to be particularly accessible for screen reader users. I have JAWS for Windows 2020, but tried them with NVDA as well. As I searched for a solution on the web, I didn't manage to find a good one. One of the posts says that Internet Explorer is still the best option, however old-fashioned it became. I love the way Internet Explorer makes it easy and simple to read my RSS feeds. I would like to have something similarly user-friendly for Chrome or Firefox. Please don't suggest that I install something on my smartphone. I have a Nokia N96 with Symbian. I only use my phone to call and read SMS messages and announce the time. Thanks for any idea that you might have. I'm really sorry that RSS feeds as a way of reaching content on the web seem to be going out of fashion. RSS is one of the greatest tools to easily be kept up to date on several websites. Just to mention an obvious example, I listened to the Mosin at Large podcast in Internet Explorer. I subscribed to your RSS feed and it is extremely convenient to get notified when a new episode is uploaded. I navigate to the link, hit enter, hit that thing, hit it. And after a few minutes, Winamp starts up and plays the program. I don't mind missing the opportunity to jump between chapters. Thanks for the show. It is always a pleasure to listen to you. Thank you very much, Peter, in Hungary. Well, now, so you don't want me to tell you about all the cool RSS apps for iPhone. Nevertheless, I would still predict that if you got yourself an iPhone and you got a number of RSS readers that I could recommend for you on that platform, within three weeks, you'd be saying, what took me so long? I have wasted so much of my life. But since you don't want me to say any of that, I will not. The only accessible RSS reader for Windows that I am aware of is called QFeed, and it's designed specifically for blind people. 
I don't know if it has been updated in a while, but RSS is a pretty constant kind of spec anyway. And you can find it and download a free version. You do have to pay for the full version. You can try it, though, at getaccessibleapps.com. That's getaccessibleapps.com. But, oh, no, I'm not going to mention the iPhone. No, I'm not. Instead, I'm just going to move right along to David, who says, are there any Windows 10 compatible podcast catching apps that work well with JAWS? Yes. Again, if you're on the same website, getaccessibleapps.com, you can have a look at QCast. That's what it's called, isn't it? Uh, QCast, and that is a Windows app that is designed specifically for blind people to consume podcasts. You can, of course, use iTunes. And I realize that for many people, iTunes is overkill. They feel it's bloatware. It's way too complicated. So QCast may be the one to go for. And looking at the stats in terms of how our podcast is consumed, we do have a few people who are checking out Mosin at Large every week using QCast. So give that a look. Get accessibleapps.com. And Evan Silver is writing in and he says, I enjoy your podcast and always learn something new each week. Oh, that's tremendous. Thank you. A couple of questions. And he also asks, coincidentally enough, what is your favorite way to read through RSS feeds on Windows computers? I know you love your RSS apps and iOS, but I really want to find a good RSS client on the Windows platform that works with JAWS. I did use the old reader website for a while. It was sort of all right, but not really. And I just don't think of consuming a lot of content on Windows. I create content on Windows. I record things and broadcast things and write things. But I don't often come to Windows just to sit and consume content. Liri on iOS is so cool, and I have it integrated with Instapaper, which in turn is integrated with Voice Dream Reader. It's just a cool set of apps. So I don't think of doing it. But hopefully QFeed will help you too, Evan. He says also, what Windows Twitter client do you prefer with JAWS? Again, I don't use Twitter on Windows very much. When we're live on Mosin at Large on Mushroom FM and we have tweets coming in, I used to use OpenTween. And the one reason why I did that was that it had automatic hashtag insertion. Then, oh, a couple of months ago, OpenTween stopped working, just stopped working. And I have no idea why, but apparently it's not just me. It seems to have been bad, defrocked, ceased to be on Twitter. So um, they've, they've, they've been naughty or something. I believe the original tween may still work. I need to investigate that. In the meantime, I use TW Blue. I support that. It's a Twitter client made for blind people by blind people, and it gets the job done for me on the rare occasions that I do use Twitter on Windows. But most of the time, if you're using one of those clients where you can see the app that I'm tweeting from, you will find that I'm tweeting with Twitterific. Here's email from Julie. We've been talking a bit about blindisms, and she says, Hi, Jonathan. Has anyone studied why blindisms occur. It seems that the blindisms that people tend to have are quite universal and they start very early in life. Are they something more than just nasty habits? Is it the brain's way of trying to make up for some sort of lack of stimulation? It might be worth looking into. 
It might, Julie. I'm sure there has been a study on this because you're right. It's kind of a thing, isn't it? And there's got to be a reason. So maybe somebody who knows about blindisms and where they come from and the ones I'm particularly aware of are rocking and eye-poking. Jonathan Mosin, Mosin at Large Podcast. Are you praying for our mantis? Then here's an informative email from Roberto Perez, who says, Hi, Jonathan. I decided to write this email inspired by David's message on episode 44 of Mosin at Large about his issues with Braille with a lowercase b. (laughs) Displays. I guess I can tell I am one of the early adopters of the Mantis Q40. It is the keyboard I've been dreaming on for years. It replaced the Focus Braille display and the Bluetooth keyboard on day one. If I put my headsets on and work with this lightweight keyboard on my lap, it totally feels like having a Braille note-taker with QWERTY keyboard running a mainstream operating system. When you connect it to a computer or smartphone via Bluetooth or USB, it identifies itself as a true keyboard, so you have instant keyboard support without any additional driver, whether you have a screen reader running or not. That means you can connect it to a new computer, start narrator or voiceover, and take it from there. Of course, Braille support depends on the screen reader, but drivers are included in the latest versions of JAWS, NVDA, and voiceover for iOS and macOS. There are some connectivity issues with iOS, but APH is aware of those, and they are working with Apple to fix them. I haven't tried Braille back on Android, but I am afraid David would face the exact same problems he is having with the Q Braille, because Braille on that side is handled by Braille TTY, which will have to be redesigned to be able to work with devices like the Q Braille or the Mantis. The Mantis has a set of internal applications, which include a basic notepad, calculator, book reader, and file manager. At least for me, and I believe for many people, This also eliminates the need for a much more expensive dedicated Braille note-taker. The editor includes Braille translation tables and many languages, which means that you're not limited to computer Braille for reading. Since the input is done through the QWERTY keyboard, the issues inherent to Braille input are out of the equation. You can only save in TXT, but open regular Word files, BRF, BRL, HTML, and DAISY using the internal applications. When connected via USB to a PC or Mac, the Mantis not only identifies itself as a keyboard, but also as a portable drive. This enables a very interesting workflow. You can take a note using the device's internal editor, switch to terminal mode to control the computer, and access the file you just wrote in the portable hard drive. This, in my opinion, is more efficient than exporting text using Braille input through the screen reader, which is the approach followed by other Braille display vendors. As you can tell, I am very passionate about this little device and wanted to share my excitement. I would be happy to answer any question about it or clarify any concern to the best of my abilities. Thank you, Roberto. I really appreciate that. I hear the enthusiasm coming through the Braille with a capital B display. Glad you like your Mantis. I have one very important question. What navigation methods are there? Are there thumb keys on the front of the display? Are there rocker bars? How do you scroll 
from line to line on this thing. I might even reach out to Larry and see if he wants to pop on the podcast because it does sound like an impactful product in this space. So that's a fantastic mini review. And anyone else who wants to chime in, please feel free. Love hearing about products like this. And while we're talking, Braille Dan is writing in and he says, Hi, Jonathan, I really like your podcast. Oh, thanks. I'm responding to the individual who is having problems with his Q Braille. That's Dave Vandermolen. I don't have the product, but I have read the manual. He needs to set up two connections for each Bluetooth device he uses, one for the screen reader and the other for a native Bluetooth connection. This might solve the problem. I have found him's technical support responsive, though they don't answer their phone. They do call back within a few days. He might consider sending them an email instead. I like him's products and own a Braille Sense and Braille Edge, which work well. I am considering the Q Braille. I am currently using the latest focus display I got from my previous employer and have had numerous problems with technical support and repairs. I have had to exchange the device at least three times. My Focus 5 has broken yet again. I don't have the money to have it repaired, as I lost my job last week. Thank you, Dan, for the email. I'm so sorry to hear about the job situation. It's really rough for a lot of people at the moment, and um, we send our very best for finding something new. Good luck. I have to say, though, that I'm using the focus 40 blue fifth generation and and it's rocking i haven't had any trouble with it so it just goes to show you know i mean it, it, sometimes things are just really random christopher writes on the subject of rss feeds and readers says there is another program called luna rss and he's got a uh, link in here which i will put in the show notes he says it's very good it allows you to manage both rss feeds and podcast feeds which of course are based on RSS. He says, I don't recommend anything from Get Accessible Apps. Most of those programs haven't been updated in quite some time, and the developer wasn't very helpful when I had problems with QFeed for Mac. And a very informative email from Wes has come in. He says, Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for putting out the podcast on Tuesday, outlining WWDC. Heidi's description and visual interpretations were insightful. Pass along my thanks. Although WWDC was re-released with descriptions, I don't know that they conveyed much more than it did without them. The production was so slick that they had to squeeze brief description dialogue into small spaces. Yes, that is worthy of mention, though. You can now go into the TV app, on whatever iDevice you have, and you can now get WWDC Audio Described, that keynote there. Wes continues, The iOS features unveiled at the keynote were not as interesting to me as the sleep tracking announcement. Working in IT, I will be looking at the screen layout changes and the like when the software comes out. I will be looking forward to seeing whether Watch Series 4 will support these features and to what watches come out in the fall. Right now, I use an app called Sleep Cycle Alarm Clock on a semi-regular basis. It started out as an iPhone app that used the accelerometer to provide sleep analysis, and then they switched to microphone-based analysis. They've had a few iterations of a watch app, with the latest coming out about a month and a half ago. It is now standalone. 
the premise of the app is that it will analyze your REM cycle and gently awaken you with sound or haptics when you come out of deep REM within 30 minutes of your alarm set time. I have noticed for a long time that if I am awakened from a deep REM by a loud alarm, I'm groggy for the rest of that day. This works well if I don't think I will take up on my wake up on my own. I hope that Apple either incorporates sleep cycle analysis into their native functionality or incorporates sleep cycle alarm somehow. A word on masks, says Wes. I'm required to wear a mask at work when I am in my office by myself. Sometimes it is a bit stifling with the mask on. The bigger issue is in large public buildings like malls. I got married in May. Congratulations. And um, my wife, who was sighted, uh, I was with her in a mall. We are living in separate cities now because she has a mortgage and we need to find jobs in the same place. We had masks on and it was very disorienting for me. I've been totally blind since birth and rely on smells and air current changes. Malls are really hard now because of the barrage of music. The mall itself pipes in and then each store seems to have its own audio. I've not been keen to go to public places by myself due to these navigational concerns. I will wear my mask at work but have trouble wearing it while walking outside. And sadly, due to other commitments, Bonnie Mosin is not able to be with us on the Bonnie Bulletin today. However, we do have a substitute in the slot, Anna Versary. Hi. <laughs> Anna Versary. Anniversary. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so it's Hi, it's still the 27th it so is. Where in, yeah, in, some, in Eastern time. Yeah, and my American friends are a bit confused because they're wishing me happy anniversary today. Even though it was yesterday, yeah, yeah. but no, it's the 27th. Okay. So it's all very technical, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, they get – they. yeah. They get, it's, it's interesting because there are a lot of people who got married on the 27th. I know about four people it's anniversary, and I didn't even really know that. Until after we got married. It's so, the thing. It's the thing. It's, the the it's also Helen thing. Keller's birthday. Yeah. Well, well, that's nice. Yeah. And and also, of course, one of the cool things about, I mean, I loved our ceremony, but we also streamed it live. Yeah, we and did. we had lots of people from we all did. around the world should, tuned like, in. stream it again or something. What? I don't know. Just for the people that missed it. They could come, you know, have a second, second helping. <laughs> I don't know. Now. And for those that don't know that are new we got married in the champagne we got room married in a fever in the, sh- <laughs> in the, champ- at the trentham race course and we had my our wedding colors were my racing colors which are uh, royal blue and white yeah quite a good analogy getting married at the race course oh uh, yeah it was great always wanted to get married on the race course yeah yeah i did i did it well, I'm glad. I sort of always want to get married in the winner circle with one of my horses, but you know that. <laughs> anyway, we had a very relaxing evening, just just yeah, kind of did. enjoying it. We we were going to go out. I think. I mean, even though we're COVID free here, uh, other than in in the quarantine places, in the captivity. I don't know. I think I think it's changed people's desire to just go out. Yeah. You know, I, I I work with uh, you know somebody who who's normally quite vibrant and was saying, you know, I just don't want to go out as much as I used to anymore, even though we can here now. 
It's yeah. been a bit strange because I've been in a couple of cafes since where they serve you, you know, where you sit down. I've been I've been Columbus Coffee twice. The first time was right after the lockdown lifted in level two, and that was a bit strange. And then I went last week, and it was pretty much business as usual. And I've been in another cafe, but I've only been in two cafes that I actually sat down in and, and ate. What do you think of this Mantis Braille display with a QWERTY keyboard? Um, I'd like to see it. That's, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. APH tends not to export their stuff. Yeah. Um, which is unfortunate, but I, I would too. I mean, I, I hope I like that the keyboard is nicely spaced. Yeah. I, it I, does have thumb keys, by the way. So cool. I was asking that question, how do you navigate? So you've got the arrow keys, mm-hmm. uh, standard to any QWERTY keyboard, but you also have thumb keys on the front. I do like the Q-Braille, but I cannot deal with the space bar on it. That's just an ergonomic risk, I think. I agree. Yeah. yeah. It's a nice machine. I mean, yeah. it is a But nice that machine. has the space bar tucked all the way yeah, above it's the really display. Strange, and yeah. um yeah, the, this is where I really we did a lot of research when designing the focus displays and it's just so much easier on your hands to have the space bar under mm-hmm. the display uh, below it. And your your hand your thumb just naturally falls on the space bar whereas if you have like with the Hims product if you you have to sort of tuck your thumb all the way under, and you'll get repetitive strain injury doing that too often. Absolutely. Yeah. I went to see Sun, ready to buy one, actually. Yeah. And when I saw where the space bar was, I explained to the hymns guy, I just want you to understand why you've lost the sale. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, I, I mean, I had the choice between QBrail and Focus 5 when I got my Braille display. And it was a hard toss-up because I did like the QBrail because it, it does some different things that the focus, you know, is different. But no, I couldn't deal with this. And I mean, when you're using the focus with JAWS, it is muscle memory. If you you commit to memory how you do control, alt, and shift, you can Mm -hmm. do it in the same way. It's just that the convenience of having dedicated keys with the Cubo can't be denied. That's really nice. It's a great idea. And the focus is hard to use with Ulysses, but that's not the focus's fault. That's Apple's fault. Oh, what, 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 what are you, what are you complaining about? Ulysses? Using it with Ulysses typing. Mm-hmm. It's it. I found that it was jumping all over the place. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I'm going to do a piece for this show sometime soon about um, integrating Ulysses with your workflow if you are a Windows user. Because, of course, there is a Ulysses for Mac. So if yeah. you're a Mac user, it's a no-brainer. Get Ulysses on your iPhone, Ulysses on your Mac. One subscription covers both. If you're a Windows user, Mm -hmm. there is no Ulysses for Windows, sadly. Mm -hmm. And so I've been working on what to do about this, and now I have the most amazing workflow. One thing that the pandemic has done, the way we do service delivery to to people, Mm. not just blind people, but in general, and there's a lot. I see so many workshops on Zoom for different technology, a lot of technology stuff, and, you know, having a a workshop on Ulysses or something like that would be great. And you can record it and, you know, have it as like a webinar or something. Yes, I am thinking about this because we do have little bits coming into this podcast that kind of endure longer than Mm -hmm. other little bits. So some of it's conversation, but we are gathering a collection of sort of little how-to type things 
And I'm trying to think about how we best make those available to we people. We should create a newsletter. A newsletter? Yeah, like a quarterly, the best of Mosin tips and tricks. Yo, <laughs> <laughs> man. Mosin at Large Podcast. Tim is writing in. Hello, Tim. He says, I knew your voice from FSCast and rediscovered your website in my search on accessible multi-room audio systems. You suggest Sonos. Suggest, he says, is an understatement with a book and mentions on most podcasts. However, I rather like Yamaha Music Cast's lineup of devices, which appears to offer me much more flexibility. I require a receiver for my existing speakers with phono input, and the Yamaha RN602 is exactly that. Apparently, they even have a Music Cast turntable. So maybe I'll hardly need that phono input after all. I read some not-too-great reviews of Sonos, and the impression I got is that while Sonos is better with streaming services, I'll set up my own server, thank you very much, he says, Yamaha is currently better with sound quality and flexibility. The problems you encountered in Mosin at Large episode 41 pushed me over the edge towards the dark side from a Sonos perspective. I ordered a Yamaha Music Cast 50 to test. Yamaha's app turns out to be very accessible. There are some glitches, the major one being that the WPA code for the temporary Wi-Fi network in the setup procedure is not being read but probably the code 12345678 is also in the manual somewhere. But almost all of the buttons are labelled, and that app is just very usable, even without any sight. That is quite exceptional for an app of this sort. Yamaha does have an accessibility statement on their website, so it looks like they are giving this some thought in the design process. The only real problem is the non-tactile touch buttons on the speaker, but that can be solved by placing markers. And after setup, you don't need the buttons anymore. You can power up and totally control the speaker from the app. While I don't have Sonos experience, I can't compare the accessibility, but I have the impression Sonos is not perfect either. My receiver is coming tomorrow and I hope the multi-room setup works as expected. But so far, sound quality and stability are just great. I intend to report the few problems I found to Yamaha. I don't know if you've tested or published about Yamaha before, but just wanted to share this with you and blind people who need advice in choosing a multi-room audio system. And there's another bit in Tim's email too, but I'll just stop there because that's where he ends about multi-room. Thanks very much, Tim. There are a myriad of options out there, and it's good to be exposed to a wide range of them. I will say a couple of things. The first is that Sonos's app is 100% accessible. Their commitment to accessibility is exemplary. Certainly on Windows and on iOS, the Sonos app is absolutely fantastic. The second thing I would say is that Sonos make great sounding hardware. They do spend a lot of time with audio engineers getting the sound just right, and they are fantastic. The third thing I would say is that Sonos has fallen behind in recent times. They established this whole multi-room product category at a time when it was really complicated to do it. They established this wireless mesh system, and I mentioned this in last week's show, long before 
Wi-Fi mesh was a real thing in general use. They invested in all of that intellectual horsepower trying to get that to work. And Sonos was streets ahead in terms of synchronization. You can, in general, get absolutely flawless sync between many devices playing the same thing in multiple rooms at once. But having created this product category probably about 14 years ago, now 14 or 15 years ago, of multi-room audio that ran wirelessly, other people came along. And that's the beauty of capitalism, isn't it? People come along and improve upon things. And there's no doubt that Sonos has been a bit slow to respond in certain areas. And they're doing that now with their S2 operating system. So they have deprecated some of their older equipment And S2 is introducing long overdue, absolutely undoubtedly long overdue features like 24-bit audio. They still have some work to do. They need to support higher sampling rates, and they also need to support multi-channel audio outside the home theater environment, outside the HDMI or optical port. There really is no reason why Sonos shouldn't be playing multi-channel audio files, and at the moment they're not, and other systems are. Probably Yamaha is and playing that really high-quality audio stuff. So, yeah, Sonos absolutely has to pull finger. I have confidence that they will, though, and their accessibility is so good. And, of course, we're really invested in this. We've got about 15 or 16 Sonos devices at Mosin Towers. So investing for us in a new ecosystem would be a big proposition. But if you're not in that position, then it does make sense to shop around because you can get some better quality options in terms of the resolution of audio that can be played at least at the moment. And that is a consideration. Sonos does have a device that would suit your use case, it sounds like, based on my understanding of the use case. They have a Sonos amp, and then they also have a device called the Sonos port, which has uh, RCA inputs, and you can set the line level of that input to turn it into a phono input if you need to. Lots of people are connecting their turntables via Sonos. Why people do this, I have absolutely no clue. I mean, all this talk, which I don't necessarily agree with anyway, about analog um, turntables sounding better than a good quality digital file, I mean, you're putting it back through a digital system if you put it through a Sonos or a Yamaha thing, so it really is a little bit silly. (laughs) Um, But people have got their little things about vinyl, and you know, they're not doing anybody any harm, so I just leave them to it. But yes, you can plug turntables into Sonos gear. And so that that is something that Sonos does cater to. But it's great. And I'll be interested in your findings because I've been a huge fan all along of blind people having as much choice as possible. If sighted people have a range of products to choose from, we should have that same choice and different strokes for different folks. So it is great. Sonos is very accessible. It couldn't be more accessible if they tried. Uh, But it's good that Yamaha is pretty accessible by the sounds of it as well. And I'm sure there'll be other multi-room audio systems that are also accessible. I do know of people who are sort of lobbying the manufacturers of their particular chosen home audio system to get better accessibility. And they'll be delighted to know that Yamaha seems to be a real contender in this space. That awful setup experience you heard in episode 41 with the Sonos Arc with admittedly a brand new operating system for them, was not typical for me. But, I mean, I'm not like a salesperson for Sonos. Um, I like their gear, but I didn't want to edit it and in any way 
eliminate the problems that I had because that was genuinely what happened to me. But it's not typical. And having now upgraded our network, Sonos is purring along. So do let us know how you go with that, Tim. He also writes, interesting to hear what you mentioned about your hearing aids. What? 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 Oh, having tested several, I can confirm that the Otacon Open is by far the best aid for Bluetooth streaming. I have the good old behind-the-ear model. Yes, so do I, because they're the only ones that do direct audio input. And I am not taking a hearing aid without direct audio input, where I can cable my hearing aids directly to a headphone jack. And uh, Tim says, and as you already know, audio streaming is just great. It is far ahead of the competition. Although their app is not perfect, it is okay. With my small usable vision, I manage quite well. And I think with some training, it also works for the totally blind, unlike other hearing aid apps, which are just useless. Yes, indeed. It's one of the reasons why I returned the Widex stuff, Tim. Reporting some issues to Otacon is one of those points on my long-term list. Greetings from the Netherlands, he says. Well, yes, I wish you luck with reporting. One of the really difficult things is actually getting to engineers at hearing aid companies who you can actually talk to and who can actually make a difference. So it would be great if they reached out to blind people a little more. So keep us posted on all that, Tim. And while we're talking Sonos and not Sonos and things like that, Chris Judge is in with this. Hi, Jonathan. I have a pair of all-weather speakers installed above my back deck. Before I got rid of my receiver in favor of my Sonos gear, I used a Sonos Connect to carry Sonos to my receiver and outdoor speakers. These speakers have been unused for the past couple of years, and I would like to begin using them again. I'm not sure of the difference between the port and the amp. What would be the best device for me to use to feed my outdoor speakers? I think, Chris, the amp, unless the speakers are powered. In other words, if you can plug those speakers into something or chuck some batteries in them, the connect will be fine. Otherwise, you need something to power those speakers, and that's fundamentally the difference between the Connect and the Amp. The Connect is essentially just a, a, a bridge. It doesn't offer any power. It just supplies RCAs and a few other connections, I think. And the Amp will give it some power for speakers, and that sounds like what you need. Hey, Jonathan, it's Mike Fair, and yeah, I just thought I'd add to this conversation about face, face uh, vision, facial vision and echolocation. Uh, I... Um, Face, I kind of understand facial vision in that it's almost like I think of cat's whiskers, right? It's very rare that a cat will brush its whisker up against something to feel what it is, right? It's, it's more that the currents of air almost, like the change in the air patterns of movement, things like that will alert the cat with whiskers to something in the vicinity. And, and as I understand it, and I think I've experienced it myself, Facial vision kind of works that way. It's like when you come up to a wall and you hear, you can hear the wall ahead of you with echolocation, but you can also sort of feel it getting closer, even if, if, if you were to move without making sound, which is, is harder to do. So to feel that wall come right up towards you, and you don't necessarily have to hear it almost to know it's there. I, I've had some experience with that, but it's, it's not something I would care to rely on overly. Echolocation I used extensively throughout my life, and I really valued it. And then now I've lost a chunk of it with hearing loss, 
uh, even with with both hearing aids, uh, which I still I'm still waiting <laughs> to get my one right ear back in in gear. I've have enough hearing loss that I can't trust it. I can't trust it to judge distance very accurately, or necessarily direction. Although that's that's at least a little better than distance, but it's it's not the same as what I once had, and I still miss that often. <laughs> so yeah, and it's it's strange being without echolocation now. Uh, it, I was never discouraged culturally. Uh, it was always a thing that I was encouraged to practice and use uh, to the best of my ability by pretty much all the teachers, all the mobility instructors I can think of that I've had uh, have encouraged that. Good to hear from you, Mike, and and that's good to hear. I hear a lot from new hearing aid wearers who often write to me, and one of the things that I do get a lot from them is, "Man, this is messing with my echolocation," and it can be a bit of a disincentive for some people who are sort of on the verge of really needing hearing aids but not wanting to lose the echolocation. And it has been an issue. One of the big challenges I used to have when doing a lot of international travel and spending times at hotels, you'd push the button, especially in those large hotels where you just have a massive bank of elevators, and the elevator would go ping, and you could hear the ping. But with the hearing aid technology of the time, it was really difficult to tell precisely where the ping was coming from. You would know if it was on your left or your right, but it was quite difficult to tell, was that in front of me or behind me? Some of the newer hearing aids are doing a slightly better job at that, which is good to hear. We are getting some feedback indicating that humanware will be carrying the Mantis, this new brow display that seems to be causing quite a buzz internationally. So this is the brow display with a QWERTY keyboard. So that is very interesting to hear. I shall find out more about that because I'd certainly like to have a look at it myself. Email coming in from Jason who says, Hello, first, Jonathan, thanks for the show and all the useful content you provide. I highly recommend for RSS and Windows the Lisi product from Brian Hartgen. This may not have all of the advanced features of a full-fledged RSS reader, but it works pretty well and is my current full-time reader. Also, he has just recently added a podcatching feature to the program as well. The product is a pretty amazing program, and he is constantly adding new features based on user requests. I am often amazed on how much more productive one can become from all the functionality built in to this amazing software package. And of course, Lisi is available from hartgen.org. That's Hartgen Consulting, H-A-R-T-G-E-N.org. Hi, Jonathan. It's Gary here. Uh, about the subject of echolocation, uh, I use it anytime I can, all the time, I think without realizing that I actually do it. Similar story to you, I was also told off at school for using it. There was one teacher in particular that was very, very upset if anybody used echolocation around her. I was told, no, I mustn't click my tongue because it's a blindism. I must rather put my hand out in front of me and feel what's coming up ahead of me. And I pointed out and I said, but now what if my hands are full or if I've got things in my hand, etc., etc." to which I was told, no, I'm being cheeky, I'm talking back, etc., etc." In hindsight, I think it was a pretty reasonable question to ask. Needless to say, I never stopped using echolocation. My parents were very supportive of me using it. I do till this day, so much so that up until a couple of years ago, before I managed to get off the treadmill, I would go out jogging in the mornings. Uh, this is at four or five in the morning where there are no cars and 
all the cars are still in the garages. There's nothing. There's no cars parked in the street. I'm ma- I mapped out a area around the blocks of my house where there are a lot of trees on either sides and high walls, and so you can hear the you can hear everything with your feet slapping and your tongue clicking and that. And I would run in this route that I worked out, knowing exactly where to turn, and also having blind square on my phone at the same time telling me right. There's the point of interest. There's the street I want to turn into, et cetera, et cetera. And then you would feel the timbre of the road and listen to the echoes around you and do it accordingly. And yes, there was once or twice that I fell or that I tripped over something or whatever, but I could not do half the things I do without echolocation. So people that use echolocation, you cannot go wrong as far as I'm concerned. If you, people that don't like to use echolocation, do yourself a favor and try it out and, uh, I really think it's it's a aspect worth using and it makes life a lot easier. Thanks, Gary. I like to hope that we have progressed. I like to hope that. I mean, it's very similar to stories that one hears about deaf people being discouraged from using sign as children in days of yore, stories of here in New Zealand, our own indigenous Maori people being spanked, being punished for using their own language in school. And to me... Uh, It's just so culturally inappropriate and really holding people back to suggest to a blind person that you shouldn't use echolocation. Um, I'm really sad to hear that I'm not the only person that that happened to. Clinton, welcome to you. He says, I currently use the Q-Braille XL with JAWS at work, and it works fairly well, but I still haven't been able to completely replace the QWERTY keyboard with it for several reasons. One of them is that I still tend to use Alt-Tab to cycle between several open programs, and the Q-Braille XL does not allow you to emulate holding down the Alt key, so Alt Tab will only toggle between the two most recently open apps. That would be a bit of a showstopper for me too. He also says, at work, I actually have three, three different Braille with a lowercase b devices on my desk, and I wind up using them all. They are currently the QBraille XL, the Braille Light Millennium, and the Braille Edge, so that I have access to different things just by moving my hands to different displays. You're living the dream, Clinton, living the dream. Of course, he continues, this is the last year that the Braille Light Millennium's calendar will work, since next year it'll revert to 1921. I had no idea that was a thing. I'm pretty sure, he says, Freedom Scientific is not planning to fix that. Guess I'd better find my next go-to calendar pretty quick. Wow. So you don't find that a calendar on your smartphone like Fantastical, which is a wonderful calendar, is sufficient, I guess. Well, thank you for that, Clinton. Really interesting email. Julie says, Hi, Jonathan. I have been hearing a little bit lately about some things that I understand are called echolocation devices. A couple of them are the Sooner Band and the Way Band. I think there is at least one other one as well. I'm wondering why they haven't been more aggressively marketed during the pandemic. In certain circumstances, it might help people to know 
if they're adequately physically distancing. Do you know anything about these devices? Yes, I've heard of those devices, and they actually are the latest in a long list of devices. One of the early pioneers of this technology, a couple of them actually, were from New Zealand. Professor Leslie Kay did a lot of work on this back in the 1970s, and this is how Russell Smith, who of course was the founder of Pulse Data, which has latterly become humanware, got into the industry as well through this work. And I was kind of a beta tester, like a, a subject that was a participant in some academic studies when I was about 9, 10, 11. And they started off with the sonic spectacles. And then by the time they gave this gear to me, you had a sonic headband that you would wear. And I must say, it was pretty awesome. I remember walking to school, which was probably a 10 or 15 minute walk when I was 11 with this technology. And you could hear overhanging trees and you could get very good at it by understanding the different sounds and what they meant. So overhanging trees had a sort of a complex, softer swooshing sound. Metallic round poles had another kind of sound. And in this test that I was a part of, they actually set up like a field full of poles and they had a slalom thing where your mission, should you choose to accept it, was to walk through this field of poles. Sounds like an Eva Cassidy song. And weave around them. You didn't have a cane or anything like that. You were to listen for the poles. And of course, it was all in stereo. And you could tell whether the poles were thicker or thinner by the sound and weave around them. And the study was pretty successful. And eventually, the headband sort of just stopped working over time. And I lost access to it. But it was pretty impressive. And people have used similar technology over the years, little handheld devices. But I liked the headband because you kept your hands free. You could still use a cane for low objects. But boy, it gave you a lot of useful information. And it was just essentially transposing those very high ultrasonic frequencies that blind people use in echolocation and giving you access to them. So you make a really, really good point about the importance of technology like this during the pandemic, because it could certainly help with social distancing. From time to time, I hear about devices that are supposed to improve Braille or sometimes replace Braille. And when I was involved in hardware product management in the blindness space, I would be shown devices that were supposed to be magical and replace Braille or make Braille better. Well, this article claims that Braille is going to be given a 21st century update if researchers at Germany's Bayreuth University, and I apologize if I've mispronounced that, get their way. Investigators at the university have been working to develop a special speaker system that emits ultrasound waves with the purpose of letting people read Braille in midair. It does this by using acoustic force to stand in for the usual tactile embossed braille writing. They're calling it HaptiRead, which is a pretty cool marketing spinny kind of name, isn't it? HaptiRead to you until we meet again. Anyway, with HaptiRead, we investigate for the first time in a user study with blind people the possibility of using mid-air haptic technology for the purpose of presenting braille text as a touchless haptic sensation. 
That is a quote from one of the researchers who has been speaking to the Digital Trends online publication. Mid-air haptic devices consist of an array of phased ultrasonic speakers. By modulating the focused ultrasonic waves, it's possible to generate perceivable haptic points in mid-air. The sensation is usually described by users as a focused, gentle air breeze. The idea of being able to incorporate Braille displays into a variety of places where they wouldn't currently be possible would be exciting at any time. But of course, it's particularly interesting at the moment because if you're not touching actually anything physical, then that's really hygienic. And Braille has the potential to be a bit of a yucky medium for hygiene, you know. In the era of COVID-19, it's not necessarily a good thing. So there's quite a bit of interest in this at the moment. It continues here, this technology, which is made up of a 16 by 16 grid of tiny ultrasound speakers, can be used to to detect the hand of a user up to a distance of 70 centimetres. It can then render the Braille text directly onto their palm in a way that is only perceptible to the immediate user. I'd be interested to see how that would work because I'm not sure if I'd want Braille on my palm as such, but I guess you could get used to it. This is where the uh, the all-important user testing is going to continue to be important. But the researchers continue, since HaptiRead provides the possibility of reading Braille with a lowercase b, so down marks for that, through touchless interactions, it definitely represents a novel solution for reading information in public spaces such as elevators, cash machines, city maps, information booths and similar. They also say that sighted users might benefit from it in applications involving a combination of visual and haptic feedback. For instance, imagine pressing buttons in mid-air or combining ultrasonic feedback with immersive virtual reality technologies in order to provide richer multi-sensory experiences to the user. A paper describing the work and subsequent user study titled HaptiRead, Reading Braille as Mid-Air Haptic Information is available to read online. You can Google for that and I will try and include, I'll try and remember to include a link to that in the show notes. It's interesting. To contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line, it's a US number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin FM.